Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're returning to one of Dr. Newfeld's great psalm series called Facing Trouble and Finding God. So let's turn to Psalm 73 with a message entitled Facing Reality. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now. Every Christian goes through periods of time when we doubt. But, and this is key, doubt never happens in a vacuum or simply comes to us out of the blue. As if here we were believing fully in God at one moment and then doubting our salvation or the truths of Scripture in the next. Now, doubt comes gradually. But even though it comes gradually and sometimes at the onset is unnoticed, and yet the reason for the doubt is never unnoticed like a sinkhole whose underground rivers have ceased to run years ago. When the collapse happens, there were long-standing reasons that led to the collapse. Here's the sad part. Many people who have serious and catastrophic doubts have little idea when it was that those doubts actually began or what led them to the place in which they currently find themselves. They don't examine when it was that doubt began or the sequence that led them there. They just say, I don't believe anymore. So, for instance, imagine you come upon someone who says he or she used to be a Christian, but, you know, she stopped believing. And so you enter into a conversation with her. I mean, what is it she has stopped believing? Is there something specific in the Bible that can no longer be trusted? Has she discovered some archaeological piece of evidence that disproves the Bible? Is it that she encountered a philosophical problem that the Bible can't solve? Is there something specific we can talk about? Or is it more general, just this general sense that faith has lost meaning to her or to him? See, in most cases, it really is not an intellectual problem. You know, I think over my years of pastoral ministry, when I countered serious catastrophic doubt in others, I could put those matters into one of four categories. The first is the category of hurt and loss or deep disappointment. Someone or something has deeply injured a person or something that was precious has been taken away and and he or she finds God to be strangely silent. You know, often the church has hurt them. And over the years, the sense of loss simply grows. A second category is the category of personal sin and an inattention to one's own spiritual life. You know, whenever sin continues unchecked without heartfelt confession and repentance, the life of faith begins to die. All it takes in the end is a trigger or a major event in which the person no longer believes. A third category is theological. There are times in which a person holds deeply heretical beliefs. Sometimes they may not even be aware of it, and sometimes they are. You know, as an example, a person may hold to liberal theology and deny the inerrancy of Scripture and deny the bodily resurrection, deny the Trinity, and in time, they may find that there's not enough there for them to sustain any faith at all. There, there is no faith, just a form of religion. But a person may also hold a deeply deficient theology, such as when a person denies the possibility of suffering. There are people who believe that that God always heals and always delivers in this life and that they really can have their best life now. And that's how they understand the Christian faith. And when they suffer, they lose their faith. In truth, the loss of faith has only demonstrated that they have had an insufficient faith from the very beginning. So hurt and loss, 
unchecked sin, false theology, and fourthly, a person may be in danger of losing their faith when they see injustice in the world. See, in this case, it's not injustice done to them. It's rather the very real presence of evil in this world and what seems to be that that God does nothing about it. Now, out of these four categories come the very real problems that people face. For example, someone prays earnestly for something that they think they need or want or deeply desire, and what they pray for does not come to pass, and they become disillusioned and deeply disappointed, and they no longer believe. Here's another scenario. Your church disappoints you or hurts you, and you just can't believe that this is Christ's body. Here's still another scenario. The values of the culture in which we live are so at odds with the faith that's found in the Bible that the constant strain to stand against the values of culture or to stand against the tide, like like in areas of sexuality, abortion, entertainment, and the money-centered life, I mean, the struggle is just so great, a person gives up. Or that struggle might be in your own family. They don't want you to believe and openly discourage your faith, and you become weary of the fight. In the end, at some point in time, unknown to even you, you just stop believing. But each of these scenarios rise out of four categories that lie underneath the surface. Hurt and disappointment, unchecked sin, false theology and therefore false expectation, and then an inability to integrate the presence of evil and injustice in the world. See, in each one of these situations, it's our interaction with life, with the real world, the the world of experiences and disappointments and dissonance and rejection, failure, even shame. Somewhere, we stop believing in the goodness of God. And perhaps that's you today. And you can't even put your finger on where it began. But today, you're cold towards God. You're cold towards prayer and the church, and and your heart no longer meditates on the glories and the mercies of the cross. Indeed, many people who have witnessed catastrophic doubt may talk about facing real life, a life where God doesn't seem to intervene, but in reality, it's not real life. Something else has long been underfoot in our inner life before that hour of doubt came upon us. So here's the question. Can you pray in such a way that deep, disheartening doubt does not overtake you? Can you ask God to safeguard your faith so that it is unassailable? And the answer is, yes, you can. You really can carry on a prayer life that will keep you vibrant and alive and trusting and counting on God in everything. And today we're going to begin to find out how. We're studying Psalm 73. And in it, we will discover a man by the name of Asaph, who so doubted his faith that in his own words, he almost lost his footing. He almost became an unbeliever. Psalm 73 tells us how he found faith after it had almost disappeared. Before we discover his story, let's find out who he actually was. We first encounter him in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, and there we read, and I'm reading 1 Chronicles chapter 6, 31 to 33, and then verse 39. There it says, these are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they performed their service according to their order. These are the men who served and their sons. Of the sons of the Kohathites, Heman, the singer of Joel, and his brother Asaph, who stood on his right hand. 
And so we might say that Asaph was appointed by King David to be a worship leader, maybe even in our language, to be a worship pastor. But he was also a man who wrote music. The book of Psalms, which really were Israel's worship hymnal, was put together in one volume during five different periods of time in Israel's history. Book three of our Psalms, which consists of Psalms 73 to 89, were put together possibly by King Josiah, who gathered some of the great worship songs in Israel together. Book three contains 17 Psalms, and 11 of the 17 were actually written by Asaph. In other words, about 350 years after they were written, these songs were considered so profound during the time of Josiah that they were gathered and brought into our book of Psalms, expanding the volume of Israel's hymns of worship to include what he had written. So whatever else we know of this man, we know that he was a highly gifted worship pastor whose music was still being sung 350 years later. We also know that he was so successful that his descendants became worship leaders themselves and were recorded as worship leaders for the next 500 years. So who was Asaph? Well, he was a singer, a songwriter, a worship pastor, a priest, and a spiritual leader in Israel, a man whose leadership was remembered for hundreds of years after his death. That is a significant man, and he was a man of faith. And this man, at one period of time, had a crisis of faith that was so severe, he says in his words, he almost abandoned his faith. So let's find out what actually happened to him. I'm reading the first three verses of Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now notice two of our themes. One is unchecked sin, which in Asaph's case is envy. And the second, notice the category of seeing evil and injustice continuing in this world without, it seems, the action of God to intervene. But please don't miss the central theme. Asaph, a man whose spiritual leadership and whose writings were so inspiring that he was remembered for hundreds of years, this man is telling us of a time when he could hardly believe anymore. He faced real life and it caused his footsteps to falter. What happened and can it happen to us? Everyone knows about the physical world, but what about the spiritual one? This is the world that isn't typically accessible through our five senses, but is just as real. In his latest series, The Invisible War, Dr. John Neufeld dives into the spiritual world, highlighting that it's an arena of great struggle, but also an expression of God's glory. This August, we want to express our gratitude for entrusting us with your gracious support. Your generosity allows us to participate together in sharing the gospel. That's why, for the month of August, we want to give you a free copy of Dr. John Neufeld's latest series, The Invisible War, on CD. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and ask for your free copy of The Invisible War today. That's 1-800-663-2425 or backtothebible.ca. In Psalm 73, verse 1, Asaph begins with the words, 
Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. See, in many ways, the psalm begins at the end, a kind of an introduction that tells us where Asaph is going to end up. When the drama he writes about ends, this will be his conclusion. God is good. God is good to Israel. God is good to those who are pure in heart. Asaph begins with this assurance because by the time we end this psalm, Asaph is not struggling with his faith at all. Rather, he has emerged on the other side of his crisis of faith with this amazing declaration. Yes, he says, I have again reaffirmed that God is good to Israel. Asaph wants us to know that at the outset that what we are about to read is a faith-building rather than a faith-destroying exercise. He's not like those who lead us into doubt, asking only questions, providing no answers. He wants us to understand that before we go any further. And by the way, by Israel, Asaph really tells us what he means. The poetry of Israel is filled with what we call Hebrew parallelism. That's a form of poetry. In this form of poetry, there's a unique way of making an affirmation or of declaring a truth. The first line makes a statement, and the second line repeats that statement, but in different words, clarifying what is meant and adding depth to the original line. So as an example, Isaiah 53 is full of those kinds of statements. So when Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, he is saying that the piercing of the Messiah is so great that it occurs through the crushing of the Messiah. Piercing in line one is given further meaning by adding the word crushing in line two. But both refer to the very same experience. So in Psalm 73, when when Asaph says that God is good to Israel, according to the next line, by Israel he means those who are pure in heart. So Asaph is really saying surely God is good to those who are faithful to him. He doesn't mean that unfaithful Jews will have the same experience. By using the word Israel in the way that he does, he actually means to teach us that God is good to those who are redeemed, to those whose hearts have been transformed. They are going to come to the same conclusion that he came to. God is good. But then against this picture, Asaph inserts himself. While God is good, he, Asaph, had at one time in his life lost complete perspective. Look again at verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When Asaph said that his feet had almost slipped, we're required to try to visualize that experience. It felt to him at one time that his feet were standing on the firm rock of God's promises, that he was doing well spiritually, but suddenly the ground gave way. He stumbled and he almost lost his spiritual footing. And that line might frighten us. I mean, after all, does doubt just overwhelm us when we're not looking? But Asaph tells us why. He says he was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. And why was that? You know, if you're not careful, you might say, well, that's because he saw that in many cases, the wicked have more success than the godly. But that's only half the equation. The real issue for Asaph was more than that what he saw. It was what happened inside of him from what he saw. It was envy. How many of you know that that green monster, envy, is alive in all of us? I mean here that every one of us sees people who are getting things in life that we believe should be ours. And how hard it is to tolerate that. 
Someone makes more money, has more success, gets greater recognition, receives the praise of others while we're being ignored, and how it grates us, how we, how we struggle with the unfairness of that, especially when those who outperform us belong to evil and wicked people. And that's what Asaph was struggling with, and not without cause. For the people who are doing better than him have a track record which shows no fear of God, no attempt to trust him or be obedient to him. So Asaph begins by being brutally honest with us. He said, God is good, but sometimes that only seems like a theological statement. In real life, it often doesn't seem that way. In other words, Asaph saw a state of dissonance. And by the way, I see what Asaph sees. Why in a universe run by a moral, righteous God do wicked people become prosperous? I mean, consider, for example, the entertainment industry. I mean, these people, actors and actresses, are often sexually immoral. They betray their spouses. They laugh at the commands of God and have a following of people all over the world who want to be just like them. Or consider the pornographic industry. Right now, Hugh Hefner, as I record this, is 91 years old, is, as I understand it, in good health, lives in a palace, wears pajamas all day long, mocks God, and is constantly smiling in spite of the fact that he has mocked God's standards of sexual morality. No thunderbolts from heaven have been directed towards him. Or look at the sports industry. I can think of any number of athletes who are arrogant and self-indulgent, sexually permissive, poor role models, and care not one whit about the God of heaven, even while all manner of average working people are just trying to care for their families, and they lose their jobs. Now then, Asaph, in verses 4 to 15, in detail, highlights the kind of things that really bothered him. Let's follow his train of thought quickly. Verses 4 to 5. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And that's true. Something must be wrong when evil people are free of things that plague so many others. And by the way, Asaph is right about this. Idi Amin was one of the most brutal dictators in the history of the African continent. He was the president of Uganda from 1971 to 1978. And during that time, for eight years, he reduced Uganda from what was once thought of as the Pearl of Africa to an utterly impoverished state, one it still has not escaped from. He left a legacy of bloodthirsty killings. According to Amnesty International, he had one half a million people murdered and stole Uganda's wealth. After he was deposed, he fled the country and was given refuge in Saudi Arabia, in the city of Jeddah, where he received his own palatial villa. There he lived in peace and security for the next 24 years, driving around in his powder blue Cadillac or his Range Rover, shopping endlessly, receiving parcels of what he bought overseas, entertaining himself with sports events, massage parlors, gym sessions, and multiple wives. He eventually died of complications with his kidney as an old man. Do you think he's the only one? Joseph Mengele, the angel of death who created Nazi concentration camps, died as a healthy old man swimming in the ocean off the coast of Brazil. He had a sudden stroke and was gone. Genghis Khan, whose Mongolian army killed 10 to 30 percent of the world's population, died of natural causes as an old man. Pol Pot, the same. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Oh, yes, Asaph got this part right. Now, says Asaph, 
Not only do the wicked often go through life with few difficulties, in verses 6 to 9, he notices that this experience has led them to become arrogant. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. They're smug, says Asaph, infatuated with themselves. They suffer no lack, and they love to sing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And they use power to get what they want. He says they even boast about this. Their tongue struts through the earth. Indeed, Dionysius the Younger, who was an ancient conqueror and an evil man, when he plundered an ancient temple, was said to have openly remarked, you see how the gods favor those who commit sacrilege. And as if that were not bad enough, listen to Asaph's next words recorded in verses 10 and 11. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? The most difficult thing for Asaph to bear was the idea that people admire and emulate wicked people because of their successes. They don't turn to God because from the example of the wicked, God does nothing to punish the wicked when they sin. They seem to get away with it. And that's the real world. And if you think it's not so, you've never faced real life. In real life, sometimes very evil, manipulative people get ahead. In real life, godless people sometimes become the wealthiest people on the earth. In real life, great fortunes are made sometimes by stepping on the lives of victims. And that is real life. And of course, the psalm is not over. There's a conclusion that Asaph reaches that will restore our faith. But in truth, if we hold the kind of faith that ignores the obvious part of life, then injustice happens to us personally and we'll lose our faith. Stay tuned for the rest of this. John, I think what you've been talking about today is so relevant to the moment in history. So can I ask you the question, if we go ahead and and follow Christian principles, does that sort of ensure our wealth? Yeah, I know that there are some that that teach that, and and I don't just mean the, the, you know, the, the the faith message people who you know equate Christianity with becoming wealthy. There are a lot of people that say, if you follow Christian principles, it will lead to good economic results. And, and many times it will, but there are all sorts of times when it won't. And sometimes we will look around ourselves and we will see people who abandon every Christian principle and every ethical principle, and they do seem to succeed in this life. Unless we have a theology for that, I'm afraid that we're going to end up where Asaph ended up many, many times in our lives, how important this lesson is. Thanks so much, John. This is Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. A listener wrote, thank you for the amazing Bible teaching. I listen daily to Back to the Bible Canada and feel blessed to have the opportunity to do so. Every message is always heartwarming. Sometimes it's difficult to understand all that goes on in our world, but our faith and the love of God is most wonderful. May God bless the ministry with great success in spreading the Word of God to all. Thank you. It's friends like you who make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God in the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? Well, with your help as a monthly partner, 
we can continue the calling of Bible teaching to our nation. If you'd like to join in and support the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, or In Doubt, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.